Well, I want you to imagine that you are on an airplane. You sit down in your seat and naturally you're praying that nobody comes and sits in the seat next to you. Uh, but as the, the final passengers board the plane, someone does come and, and sit down right next to you. And as preparations are being made for, for takeoff, small talk ensues. The person tells you that they're on a trip for work and they explain briefly what they do for a living and then they ask you that question. So tell me about you. How do you answer those questions about identity? Who are you? Now I have a little bit of an advantage in those conversations because as soon as I tell people that I'm a pastor, they just change the topic or they put their headphones in and, and settle in for the flight. But, but how do you answer those questions related to who you are, to your identity? Who are you, after all? What things define you? What are the attributes or vocations that make you, you? It shouldn't be a surprise to you to hear that one of the great struggles of our world today relates to the question of identity. This certainly isn't a new thing. Human beings have always wrestled with questions of identity, whether brought about by the angst of adolescence, by traumatic experiences, or by life events that cause us to question everything that we have believed about ourselves. This wrestling and this seeking to find oneself is very common. It's normal. These questions of identity have only been amplified as culture has increasingly questioned absolute truth it becomes more and more secular the truth is that without a god without divine order and structure and purpose and will and absolutes the only identity and for that matter the only value that you have as a human person is whatever you can achieve whatever you can construct for yourself if there is no true purpose to this world and to this life, if this is all a cosmic accident, then there is no true value, no true sense of identity. And any sense of identity that we do find is only sort of a fictional framework that we apply to our lives to try to trick us into thinking that our lives really do have meaning. But of course, if there is a God, a God who created all things, who created with intentionality, then there is the possibility of having a true identity, of having true purpose, true value in this life. This is partly why we've seen the rise in people claiming to be, quote, spiritual but not religious. It gives one the benefits of purpose and value, without the baggage of a God who might make demands of your life. Spiritual but not religious allows me to feel special because there is a divine being out there, but if I refuse to define him, then, then I, I can claim all of the benefits of purpose and value in life without ever having to assume that I could possibly be on his bad side. But the good news is that when we come to trust in the God of the Bible as the one true God, he has plenty to say about our identity, about our value. 
He has much to say about our sense of belonging and purpose and our eternal hope. Our sermon text today comes from 1 John chapter 3. And I would remind you that this is God's word to us. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. All who have this hope in Him purify themselves, just as He is pure. A loving God, we confess that your word is true, and we pray that you would open our eyes to see, uh, soften our hearts to receive and to believe all that you are saying today. May, may the words of my mouth, may the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In just uh, three short verses, God has much to say about who we are. Allow me, as we consider God's word to us today, to share four things that define us, four pieces of our identity in Christ. The first thing that we see is this, that we are recipients of God's great love. Verse 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us. R.C.H. Lenski, one of my favorite New Testament commentators, translated verse 1 this way. He said, just take a look at this love. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. In the King James, you might have memorized this verse in Sunday school at one time or another as, Behold, behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Our translation this morning seeks to capture that sense of awe that's in the text by choosing the word lavished. God has given us his great love. He has poured out his love upon us. It's possible that we might become so accustomed to hearing about the love of God that those words might begin to lose their impact, their power. May that never be so. May we never grow calloused at hearing of God's love for us. May the fact that he loves me always move my heart. May those words never lose their impact. This is defining. This is identity creating. That the God who spoke all things into being has also declared his love for you. Behold, what great love the Father has lavished on us. This is most clearly understood, perhaps, in the fact that God has declared us his children. Our text says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. God doesn't just love us in an arbitrary way. He loves us in such a way that all who 
receive his son Jesus are declared his children. God adopts us, we might say. He makes us part of his family. He promises us an inheritance. You know, God could have defined his relationship with us in any number of ways. But he chose to use what is probably the most pure, beautiful, and natural relationship that we know in our human experience, the love of a parent for their child. We have maybe lost a little of this in our modern culture, but in many cultures throughout the history of mankind, your family truly did define who you were. Think about Scandinavian culture. Many of us are familiar with Scandinavian culture. There are a whole bunch of people, even in our church this morning, who bear the marks of this tradition of family imparting our identity. Think of all those names that we know of from the Scandinavian tradition. I live on Carlson Street. We have names here this morning, names like Christensen, Stevenson, other names like Olson, Johnson, Larson. We know the history of that, right? We know that in that tradition, Carl, the son of Carl, would be Carl's son. The son of Oli would be Olson. And the list goes on. Defined by our relationship with our father. Think about that. Is there a better picture of what we find in our text for today? Your identity comes from your father. And by faith, you are a child of God. Your father is your heavenly father. That's the kind of love, John says, that God has for us. An identity imparting love. I read for you last week from John chapter 1, but it almost demands to be read again this week. John chapter 1 verses 11 and 12 says this, he came, speaking of Jesus, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Scripture says, behold, look, see, stop, stare, stand in awe of a love that makes an enemy into a child. This realization should cause worship to rise up within our hearts. To believe this promise leaves us forever changed. That the righteous, holy, perfect God of all should look at me, not with anger. Not with the judgment that I deserve, but with love. And this is even more surreal when we remember that God knows all and sees all. That God sees every sin, every word that we've uttered in anger, every impure thought or action, every moment of failure or indiscretion. God has seen it all and God knows it all, and as we confess in the catechism, his thoughts about you are thoughts of love and blessing. When I'm reminded that God has loved me in such a way, how could I do anything other than respond in worship to him? God has given us his love, and his love is not measured, it's not conservative, his love isn't conditional upon our reciprocation 
It's not distributed cautiously out of fear of being taken advantage of. God doesn't give a careful and reasonable portion of his love, but he keeps on pouring out until the cup runs over. We might say that God is liberal, plentiful, generous, maybe even prodigal with his love. How do we know? Because his love came to us, not in some arbitrary way, but in the form of a real person, with real flesh and blood and breath in his lungs. And although he never sinned like you and I, he died for sinners. God poured out his love. He lavished his love upon us as the blood of his son was poured out for you and for me. Is there anything more defining? Anything that is more closely tied to our very identity than the reality that God loves us and that he has poured out, given, lavished his love upon us in Christ? We are recipients of God's great love. What else does our passage today have to say about our identity? Second, says that we will be unknown to our world. Verse 1 continues, the reason that the world does not know us is that it did not know him. We could translate what John says here to read this way, the reason the world does not understand us is that it did not understand him. So much of what Jesus taught and so much of how scripture calls us to live is absolute craziness in the eyes of our world. It doesn't make sense logically. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. We need not be surprised when we encounter a world that is hostile to the Christian life, the Christian message, the teaching of the scriptures. This should, in fact, be our expectation. For example, I preached a sermon three weeks ago dealing with God's design for the order of the office of pastor that would lead most in our society, most everyday people, if they listened to that sermon where I was just simply saying what the word says, would label me a misogynist. I expect that the world won't be able to understand teaching like that because they've already rejected the one who spoke those words. If they reject Jesus, of course they're going to reject us. We should expect that. In Galatians 1, Paul says that if we're trying to please people, we cannot serve Christ. And so there's just this realization, this understanding that if we live faithfully to Christ, that we will, in some ways, be unknown to those around us. At best, they might think that we're just a little weird. But we've seen countless times in the history of the church, if we study history, we know that there are times when not only have Christians been seen as weird, but as a threat. Now, this doesn't mean that we should be intentionally adversarial toward the world around us. Remember Paul's mantra in mission to a lost world. Paul said that he would become all things to all people so that some might be saved. Some Christians assume that because we're going to be misunderstood by our world, we might as well just go on the offensive and take an adversarial posture in all things. That's not what God calls us to. He he just simply says the reason that the world doesn't know us 
and won't understand us is because it didn't know him. And as we become an increasingly post-Christian culture, we are going to see this more and more as time goes on, that the world will not know us, that we will be unknown to our world. The reality that the world will not understand us doesn't mean that we run headlong into conflict, but it does mean that we don't look to this world for our identity. We don't measure our success and our value in terms of our popularity. We can expect that we will be unknown to our world. What else does our text have to say about our identity in Christ? Third, we anticipate Christ's return. Verse 2 says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We are, by faith, children of God, but we can't fully understand and know all of what we are in Christ. We can't completely comprehend all of what we have been given. There's an acknowledgement here of the difficulty and the confusion that we so often face in this life. We struggle to understand all that God has promised because we are so limited in our thinking when it comes to eternal things. We can't see and comprehend as God sees. And so we live with the promise of eternal life, but we can't really comprehend it. We live with the promise of one day there being no more sin or disease or suffering or pain. But we can't really understand it. We can't really get our minds around it. And so John simply says, we can't see everything now, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him because we will see him. So not only are we ones upon whom God has lavished his love, and not only will the world not know us, but we long for, we anticipate, we live with an expectancy of Christ's return. Think of the certainty with which our text speaks. When Christ returns, or when Christ appears. In just a few weeks, we'll be moving into the season of Advent. While Advent is certainly a time of preparation for our Christmas celebration, it's also a season in which the church historically has set aside to anticipate not just Christ's first Advent, first coming, but his second coming, his return. See, the Christian faith isn't one that is purely historical. It's not all about what has happened in the past. It's also about what God has promised. What has God promised? That Jesus will return and will bring an end to sin and to death and to evil, and that he will make all things new. So the people of God approach their lives, their daily tasks, with an anticipation that this is all part of this life, this mission that has been entrusted to us as we await Christ's return. Anticipating all of God's promises being fulfilled. I'm going to spend a couple minutes right now in Romans chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn to Romans 8. I'm going to show us how our passage for today sort of fits hand in glove 
with what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 speaks of this anticipation for Christ's return. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, we read that all of creation is, Paul uses the word groaning, longing for its redemption, waiting patiently for the the promises of God to be fully realized. And what does our text from 1 John chapter 3 say will happen when Christ returns? But we know that when Christ returns or appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. When he comes, we shall be like him. Now listen to Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. It says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Who have been called according to his purpose. And then hear these words. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This gives us the long view of our anticipation, of our waiting, that God is working all things for our good, and then what comes next, that God has chosen us, he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. God is doing that work today. It's what we call sanctification. The daily work of the Holy Spirit, making us more and more like Christ. But when Christ returns, 1 John 3 says, when Christ appears, this work will be finalized. We will be like him. We will be conformed to the image of Jesus. This really is our great hope. That we will no longer be sinners, no longer corruptible, no longer frail, no longer dying We will be like Jesus. And this change will happen when Christ appears, and and it'll be both physical and, and also spiritual. We'll be given a glorified body, free of all of the effects that sin has on this mortal body. But it's also spiritual in the sense that we will at that moment be free from the power of sin. We will be like our Savior. Paul spoke of this in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. We can live with great confidence that Jesus will return because Jesus is always true to his promises. But we don't just sit back and relax. There's this great story about John Wesley. John Wesley was the English theologian who founded what we know as the Methodist movement. Wesley was asked a question one day. He he was asked, what would you do if you knew that Jesus was going to return at this very hour tomorrow? And Wesley's response was simply, I'd go to bed and sleep. I'd wake up in the morning and go on with my work because I would want him to find me doing what he had appointed confidence in Christ's return. It doesn't make us lazy. It gives us peace for the difficult seasons of life, and then it motivates us toward his mission to do what he has appointed, what he has called us to. And that brings us to the final phrase found in our text for today that speaks to our identity in Christ, and that's that we respond to God's love and promises by living in obedience to him.
Verse 3 of our text says, All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. Notice that this promise of Christ's return is referred to as our hope. What's the natural result of God pouring out his love upon us, promising that one day he'll return, that we will be like him? The response is that we purify ourselves just as he is pure. We choose to live our lives in obedience to him. We allow him to mold us, to shape us, to sanctify us. Those who have received God's love, who have been adopted into his family, who have been given the hope of eternity, will desire for their lives to be more and more like Christ. One of the things that distinguishes the child of God from others is that we don't live for ourselves first. Christian life is one of repentance and faith. And the very nature of repentance is turning away from our tendency, our proclivity, to live as if we are the center of all things. Repentance, by its very nature, is turning from ourselves to Christ. Turning from a life of disobedience and self-worship toward a life of obedience to God. When we hear these words from our text, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. When we hear those words, the only true and proper response is to ask God to change us, to transform our lives, to help us live in such a way as to please one who has loved us like that. Now we have to recognize three important things when we talk about repentance and obedience and sanctification. There's, there's three things that I want to share with you this morning that are important in helping us understand that. And the first one is this, that repentance and all that follows it is primarily God's work. You would never, if left to yourself, you would never turn from yourself toward God. You would never deny yourself and your feelings and your desires and the inclinations of your human nature without God working that repentance within you through his word, by his spirit. And so we recognize that the act of repentance itself is God's work. The second thing that we recognize is this, that we never find our assurance of forgiveness and of eternal salvation in our actions or in our works. When my soul is troubled, when I'm questioning whether I truly am forgiven, whether I truly have eternal life, whether I truly am a child of God, I should never look to my works, to my behavior, to my spiritual progress, to the way that I live in order to find assurance. All that I will find in myself if I look for assurance is assurance of my damnation. Those things are subjective. They are ever-changing. They flap in the breeze. They vary from day to day. So where do we look for assurance of forgiveness and eternal salvation? We look to Christ, to what he has done, to the promises that he has made to sinners, that while we were still in our sin, Christ died for us. We look to the promise of God's great love for us that takes sinners and makes them children. Our assurance is never 
in our ability to purify ourselves. Purification, as our text speaks of it, is always the product of what Christ has done for us, never the cause or the source. We don't purify ourselves in order to earn or receive God's love. We purify ourselves because God has loved us and has called us his children. We don't live in obedience in order to make God love us, but because he already does. The eyes of the Christian are fixed on God and his love for us, not on what we can do. Our hope is found solely in what God has done, what he has promised, not on what we can do. Our our assurance is rooted in Christ alone and not in ourselves. And so the final thing that we recognize when we think about obedience and sanctification is this, that we are simultaneously saint and sinner. We are at the same time justified and sinful. In other words, as long as you are in this life, looking forward to Christ's return, you will sin. You will wrestle every day of your human existence against your sinful nature. And every day we must go back to the cross in repentance. You must go back to the promise that you have been crucified with Christ. You must believe the good news of God's great love for you, lavished upon you, proven on the cross, expressed in declaring you his daughter or his son. I will never on this side of eternity be fully purified because I will continue every day to struggle with sin. And yet in God's economy, I am purified. I am sanctified. I am justified. I am forgiven. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are, our text says. Cling to those six beautiful gospel words and that is what we are. By faith in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. You are purified. You are forgiven. You are his child. That is what you are. If you are trusting in Jesus today, these are words of life and hope. That is what you are. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. That is what we are. Thus saith the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, if we're honest, we often don't feel like your children. We don't deserve to be your children. When we look at our lives, when we examine our hearts, the the evidence seems to be to the contrary. And so we're grateful for these six gospel words, and that is what we are. Those are words spoken by you, 
declaring that by faith alone we are purified, sanctified, forgiven, that we are your children. And so, God, we praise you today. We ask you to convince our minds and our hearts anew that these words really are true, that we really are your children. Help us to to rest in these words today, to live our lives from these words, that these gospel words would define us, that they would be our identity, that we truly are your children. You are so good to us. We give you thanks. We we love you because you first loved us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.